0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel, and today I am very pleased to welcome Celeste Watkins-Hayes, who is the author most recently of Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV-AIDS Confront Inequality, from the University of California Press. Celeste, welcome. Good to have you here.
1: Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here.
0: So before we dive in and talk about Remaking a Life, I wonder if you might just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and your previous work, and then perhaps a little bit about how you came to this particular project.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. So I am a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Northwestern University. I am also a fellow at Northwestern's Institute for Policy Research. Um, I have been interested in work and questions at the intersection of inequality, public policy, and uh, organizations for quite some time with a specific focus on race, class, and gender. I'm interested in how organizations help to transform lives, and I'm interested in how organizations Uh, undercut and undermine lives and well-being. So it was in that spirit that I came into this research on women living with HIV and how they use institutions to confront what I call the injuries of inequality, those big and small wounds to their their well-being, their families, their communities that are really the result of unequal power dynamics.
0: So... In the first chapter, you introduce us to one of the uh, principal subjects of the book, and that's a a woman named Dawn. Um, And she says, if it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. So why don't we start there? Tell us a little bit, who is Dawn? And what on earth did she mean by that?
1: Yes. What a powerful statement, right? How can an illness that's responsible for the deaths of millions around the world be responsible for saving her life? It's a very complicated statement. And one of the things that I learned in talking to the women is their ability to boil things down in really helpful ways to help us understand the issues. Dawn was a woman who grew up in a working class family in Chicago. Um, She had basically grown up in an era where community disinvestment was rampant in a lot of ways. There were businesses that were closing, there were fewer jobs to be had, and the city was grappling with the rise of a drug epidemic that was uh, significant and really impacting the lives of young people around her. At the same time, Dawn was a survivor of childhood sexual trauma. And this happened to her at an age where she was just coming into her own as a young woman. And her escape became what I call the sexualized drug economy. So her community was already grappling with a whole host of challenges and struggles. On a personal level, she was grappling with a whole host of challenges and struggles and drugs became a way for her to self-medicate. She ends up homeless on the streets, really frustrating friends and family members who didn't understand what was happening with her. She told no one about the sexual trauma that she had suffered at the hands of a family member. Um, And with her increasing isolation, she found herself having to participate in survival sex to survive. Um, emergency rooms became the only access to health care that she had. And she was so um, far gone in so many different illnesses, whether it was her addiction to drugs, but also her HIV status that she committed or attempted to commit suicide. Things were just that dire. It was really her entry into a place that I call St. Mary's in the book that provided the stability that she needed to be able to make it. She was able to detox from the drugs and alcohol. She was able to come into a community of support of other women who were battling addiction and HIV positive statuses. She was able to get access to healthcare in a way that was stabilizing. So she got a primary care physician. She got an HIV doctor. She began to do her research on what she was facing in terms of HIV And she began to come into her own in terms of voicing what had happened to her as a child and also recognizing the unique talents and skills that she had around communicating with other people. So she became a public speaker around her HIV status. She participated in lobbying efforts with the HIV AIDS community. She even had the opportunity to meet with Nancy Pelosi about the needs of people living with HIV. And in the course of decades, Dawn essentially remade her life. She went from going from what I would call dying from, dying from her HIV status, but dying from a whole host of issues. When you think about that story, dying from poverty and homelessness and addiction and the aftermath of childhood sexual trauma to living with, getting to a place of stability where she's able to better manage her health, getting to a place of economic stability where she's not so reliant on the sexualized drug economy to survive um, and and beginning to gather some social support to Dawn's movement, to what I call thriving despite the place where she is living to her fullest potential. She's contributing in really important ways and she's able to use her talents and gifts to help others. So that movement from dying from to living with to thriving despite happened through her own resilience, but it also happened through the support of a very robust HIV AIDS safety net that provided her that support. So what I came to realize is that what Dawn was really telling me when she said, if it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. She was saying, if it weren't for the HIV AIDS community... And that system of support that was so important for me, I'd probably be dead. So what Dawn was gesturing to was the significance of a safety net that had really allowed her to make a transformative change in her life. And for someone like me who's interested in this intersection of institutions and public policy and how they respond to injuries of inequality, I became really intrigued by this idea of how does the HIV safety net save lives just as it had saved Don's life?
0: So let's I would have, uh, sort of pull back just sort of a step from where you, where you just finished off, because, I mean, in some ways, what you're describing is, of course, uh, uh, an indictment of a failure of a whole host of public institutions to be there and to provide services for someone like Don absent an HIV diagnosis what is, what is it in your read of that sort of policy history that caused services for HIV and AIDS to be available to folks like Dawn when other kinds of services that were, were, were just as much needed to her right prior to, to the diagnosis, why were they absent until HIV? What was distinct about that particular disease or that moment?
1: That's one of the great ironies and puzzles that I I grapple with in my book. I think about the ways in which our larger societal safety net is so very tattered. And when we think about the history of what's happened just in the last several decades since the decline of the welfare system, are real fundamental debates in this country about whether healthcare is a right and the idea that, that not everyone believes that it's a, it's a right that should be supplied by the public, and the ways in which we have over many, many decades, really since the advent of our poor relief system, demonized the poor. Um, we have decided that Within our capitalist system, although there are quote unquote winners and losers, the people on the bottom of the ladder nevertheless do not deserve a basic level of access to health care, economic sustainability, social support, and even political voice. And it's really troubling when we think about where we are in this country and our belief system and our idea and our assumptions that any safety net is suspicious and is something that we should view as an instance of fraud or freeloading and something that we should push back against. There are definitely political forces that have fought very hard and been very strategic and systematic to really undermine our belief in safety nets. When we think about it, though, all of us, including those of us who are very well resourced, have safety nets. If we were to lose our uh, our jobs, if we were to lose major, if we were to fall into a crisis, many of us have all kinds of backup systems and reservoirs that we've used. Um, and they have been built, built through, yes, our hard work and, yes, private access to resources, but also through a lot of public goods that we've got to acknowledge and pay attention to. So, so too do low income populations, so too do marginalized populations need access to public goods that many of us um, take for granted. Um, Healthcare being um, an an important example and that idea of just a basic level of economic assistance. So we're in a place where unfortunately what qualified Don for assistance was not economic need. It wasn't that she was undergoing severe health challenges because of her history of sexual trauma, because of her drug addiction, because of a whole host of other illnesses that she was facing. What qualified her for services was an HIV diagnosis. And we really want to be thoughtful about, you know, and I should say very clearly, I did not interview one woman who said, I acquired HIV to get access to services. There's all kinds of stigma and challenges involved with living with HIV. It's still a very serious illness. It still, despite the medications, has ways of wreaking havoc on the body and the long-term effects of the medications do as well. So it's not as though women selected this identity, but they found nevertheless that once they were diagnosed with HIV... And they were living in communities with robust access to HIV services, they found a community. And what the AIDS community has done very, very effectively, and why I'm arguing in this book that the H is, is that the AIDS community has created one of the most effective social safety nets that doesn't get credit for building such a strong safety net is they did it through public policy. When we look at the Ryan White Care Act, when we look at housing opportunities for people living with HIV, when we look at the ways in which they fought for access to health care in ways that are reminiscent to what we are now seeing with discussions about the Affordable Care Act, but they created a system of care that had a culture around non-stigmatizing services they created a culture of care that really was fundamentally about not attacking people for the situation in which they found themselves in for not asking about what have you done wrong to necessitate these services but they've really thought about how do we just confront the problem and how do we see people to their fullest potential and how do we come together as a community that provides services that are empowering and affirming, that are trauma-informed, and then from there, people have been able to transform their lives in really important and critical ways. So it really also raises the question of what does it mean to provide services In a way, in a climate, in a culture that affirms human beings and provides a level of dignity such that they can transform their lives and go on to do really important and valuable things
0: so in addition to to that kind of of access to to programs to institutions to structures to to networks that you just talked about you also talk about the uh, the importance uh in that in that transformation in that move uh from with, by dawn and others you you uh Spend enormous amounts of time with this is over a a decade long period to move from dying from to to living with as you characterize it. You also talk about about the the, the necessity for for being for there being a cognitive shift that goes along with that, Uh, and that not everybody makes it, right? Not all of these women are able to move to make that transformation. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the cognitive side about this and what in your read distinguishes the, the women who are able to emerge from the other side of this with a new relationship to their disease, to their lives, to their communities, and those who maybe are less successful at that?
1: Absolutely. So I've talked to several women about what I call this cognitive shift and and what what was the moment. And it it shows up in women for women in different ways. They describe it as, you know, I just got tired of being sick and tired or I realized that I didn't want HIV to take me out. And what I found was there was often a turning point. There was a set of external events that would happen, whether it was being on death's door in the emergency room, whether it was seeing someone who reminded her of herself and that frightened her, for example, of what her future could be. Whether it was having to come face to face with the idea that that death was a was a real possibility and an and, and immediate death was a real possibility if they didn't begin to take care of themselves. Or it was recognizing that they just did not want to live the rest of their lives in this place of stigma. And it often was driven by an external set of events, a, a kind of turning point happens where women Are really encouraged to dig deep and to think about how they want to proceed with this next chapter of their lives. But then it's very much a cognitive internal process where women almost have this internal debate within themselves to say, despite the circumstances, because there's no doubt that whether I'm talking to women who are low income, who are dealing with histories of severe trauma who are dealing with addiction, who are dealing with a whole host of issues and will tell you HIV is actually not the worst thing that's happened to me, to women who I talked to who really were living with relative economic and social privilege And were it not for HIV, believe that their lives are on a very smooth trajectory, what those women have in common is this internal conversation where they have to say, how are the next several years of my life going to look? And at what point am I going to take the reins of this circumstance? At what point am I going to understand that I am in control of how I think about things? I may not be in control of my circumstances, but I'm in control of how I think about whether HIV is a death sentence and I'm just waiting for that moment to happen or whether HIV is a manageable chronic illness that will take its place in my life along with everything else happening in my life for good or for ill. So once women had those moments of cognitive shift, then they were able to put in place the tools and the strategies and the resources and the networks that they would, move, they would need to move from dying from to living with. For some women, it was a very dramatic moment. It was waking up in the emergency room and realizing that that you've got to make a change. And for other women, it was just a series of conversations that they may have had in support group meetings with therapists, with other women living with HIV, where they came to understand little by little, but nevertheless, very deeply internally, that this is something that I can manage and this is something that can take its place in my life And it doesn't have to define my life.
0: You're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpare with the Public Policy Channel, and we are speaking with Celeste Watkins Hayes about remaking a life: How Women Living with HIV and AIDS Confront Inequality, from University of California Press. Um, so, Celeste, you you hinted at this more than hinted. You spoke about this a little bit about earlier, but I wonder if you might take a moment and and sort of walk through what you think the policy implications are for this, as it as it regards uh, uh, AIDS policy specifically, but but any other Places where you think that institutions and communities might learn from what you have learned about these women's uh, interaction with those systems and their own sort of of, uh, altered understandings of their own power and their own lives.
1: Absolutely. So I'll start with AIDS policy. I think it's very important that we not get complacent about the significance of the HIV safety net in the lives of people living with HIV. We're at a very interesting moment in the epidemic where we have the biomedical tools to end the epidemic. And we're starting to hear more conversation, whether it be the President's State of the Union address. Um, that talked about ending the epidemic by the year 2030, whether we're talking about articles that we're hearing um, in different news outlets of declining rates in various areas and within particular communities. And um, largely, this is because of the fantastic efforts that have gone into curbing the epidemic, but also our awareness that we now have strong scientific evidence to show that we've got the medications to end this epidemic. We now can access PrEP. Uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which can um, significantly reduce um, one's uh, acquisition or the likelihood of one acquiring HIV, so this can basically prevent HIV transmission among HIV-negative individuals. And then for people who are living with HIV, we've got treatments that can render viral loads undetectable, such that they're still living with HIV, but we can't detect HIV in the body because the the levels of HIV are so minimal. And as 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 a result, we're hearing more and more about undetectable meaning untransmittable, so that HIV cannot be sexually transmitted um, through uh, for people who have undetectable undetectable viral loads, or the rate is um, minuscule; it's reduced by ninety-six percent. So, very, very significant. So that means that it's very tempting for us to believe that as long as you take the pill to prevent HIV infection. Or as long as you take the pill to keep your HIV in check, if you already have it, we're out of the woods. So it's going to be very tempting for us to try to prescribe our way out of the HIV AIDS epidemic. But what the women that I've talked to show time and time again is that it's not just getting pills into bodies. It's about making sure that people have a basic level of stability in their lives so that they're not dealing with so many crises that the last thing they're thinking about is taking the pill. So we've got to get people to a place where they've got the health support and access to health care, they've got the social support, they've got the access to services for housing, for food, for basic economic sustenance, to be able to make sure that they're managing their health in a way that, yes, they can take the medications. So it's really important that in our conversations about ending the epidemic, yes, we talk about how do we get more people taking the pills, but we've also got to think about how do we address the social conditions and the economic conditions that make it so that people are not living in crisis In ways that Dawn and many of the women that I spoke to once were because what Dawn's stories shows is that even when people know what they need to do, even when people know that they're supposed to be taking the medications, if they're grappling with homelessness, if they're grappling with crippling stigma they are just not going to be as focused in terms of following doctor's prescriptions. Um, So we've got to make sure that we're being holistic. We've got to make sure that we're thinking about wraparound care so that people can move from dying from to living with to thriving despite. So the first thing I would say in terms of policy is we can't underestimate the power of the safety net. We've got to protect the Ryan White Care Act, which funds a lot of the services that people get access to when they're living with HIV. We've got to um, everything from healthcare assistance to AIDS medications to housing assistance. We've got to to support group meetings. I've got to add that as well. Those are very, very important for people to get that social support and to be in conversation with other people who are dealing with the same thing. We've also got to make sure that we're thinking about the Affordable Care Act um, because that is also a key access point for people who are living with HIV to get care. So making sure that we protect that is also really important. More broadly, I think that the HIV safety net story really points to what it really takes to assist marginalized populations. So when we're thinking about people who have been shut out of society, whether they've been incarcerated, whether they have drug histories, whether they have HIV diagnoses, we've got to be thinking about how do we provide holistic and wraparound care for those communities. And the most pressing example of where we're seeing this now is in our current opioid crisis, where when you look at those communities that are dealing with opioid crises, they're often economically depressed. They're often places where the social services have been depleted, where people are having struggles getting access to health care. And it creates a perfect window for a drug epidemic That is also responsible for the transmission of a whole host of other illnesses like HIV, like hepatitis, to enter into a community and grow unchecked because they're not the supports available to counteract that. So I think that this conversation goes beyond HIV. It really goes beyond What are we willing to do to make sure that people at the bottom of the social and economic ladder don't find themselves vulnerable to the latest health crisis, whether it's HIV or whether it's opioids or whether it's a whole host of things that can threaten their health, because they have been subject to a whole host of injuries of inequality? You
0: have been listening to Celeste Watkins-Hayes talk about her wondrous and really sort of powerful and fascinating new book called Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV AIDS Confront Inequality. And as you've just heard, um, I think that the, the, the implications of what she discovers and her analysis here extend far beyond just looking at AIDS policy or even health policy more broadly, but really sort of thinking about how we understand individuals and communities relationships to, uh, local state and national, uh, organizations and programs of government. So I encourage everyone to go out and get their own copy and take a look for themselves. Celeste, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners and have really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much.